Hello, Podwalkers, and welcome to another Goblin Lore Podcast. This episode is going to be the first of two in a series where we talk to Morgan Wentworth and Bibliovore Orc about books in Magic the Gathering. This is another classic interview podcast for us where we had so much great information from our guests, so many great stories and things to think about that we just couldn't fit it all into one podcast. So we decided that we're going to give you another two-podcast episode so that you can spread out the discussion without getting the daunting time of an hour-long episode on your plate. You'll note that there's a little bit of thumping and clicking going on during this podcast. That's actually due to Hobbs's dog, Watson, who is sitting in the dining room with us as we recorded. You'll have to forgive us for his collar clinking. Thanks, Quality Control, Watson. Finally, you'll also notice a little bit of echo coming from our microphones. That's because we were recording in a wooden space. We didn't realize the acoustics until after we'd recorded the episode. So next time that we do a larger group live session, we'll have that figured out. With all that out of the way, let's get to the show. Hello, Podwalkers, and welcome to another episode of Goblin Lore. This week is a super special episode. We are recording from GP Minneapolis. Well, from Minneapolis, not at the GP. We're at Hobbs's house. But it is GP weekend, and even more special than that, we have two guests on today, Morgan Wentworth and Bibliovor Orc, to come talk about books and magic and why books are important to magic lore, why they, how they contribute to magic art, and we're going to have our first ever Duel of the Librarians. But first, I would like to introduce my lovely co-hosts, or have them introduce themselves, and then tell us also where uh, listeners can find you on Twitter and a piece of magic flavor text that you identify with. Why don't we start with you, Morgan? My name is Morgan, and you can find me on Twitter at MTGValkyrie. I post about the magic stuff that I'm doing, about book cards that I found, and about the races that I'm running right now. And flavor text that I really identify with is from the Eternal Masters edition of Enlightened Tutor. It says, organization is often undervalued, but rarely unjustified. Uh, quoting Frasio, Royal Archivist. I am a Orcish librarian. You can find me on Twitter at uh, BibliovoreOrc. And I... I'm not sure that you wanted to phrase it by inviting us to dig in to uh, books and lore because I'm liable to take that instruction a little bit literally. Um, <laughs> but but uh, hopefully I can refrain from eating anything that I'm not supposed to eat here today. Flavor text that, that speaks to me, I'm going to go with the text on Baron Master Wizard from Urza Saga, who is depicted on the card holding a book. So we are we're being on theme here and he is quoted as saying knowledge is no more expensive than ignorance and at least as satisfying all right uh i'm alex we found on twitter at alexander new m and i think my my favorite flavor text is is from an unhinged card called double header players that don't read flavor text aren't too bright sort of smell and dress funny but let's just keep that between us okay they, <laughs> they can get kind of violent <laughs> I'm Hobbs. <laughs> find me at Hobbs Q. Mine, I felt, feels like it could be on an, an uncard, but it's not. It's a, the flavor text 
from Mana Barbs that is, I don't know why people say a double-edged sword is bad. It's a sword with two edges. Kamal Pit Fighter. You get twice as much sword. That's two that's for the value. Person. Right, that's, that's right. just value. I love Can't it. Can't leave that value on the table. And I'm your host, Joe Rediman. You can find me on Twitter at Findhorn. That's F-Y-N-D Horn. And I'm going to pick my favorite uh, commander card here. That's Scrambleverse. And Scrambleverse's flavor text is... Sometimes a little chaos is in order. And you know me, love puns, love my puns. So, with that, uh, with that out of the way... <laughs> well, we made it five minutes. It's pretty good, that's yeah, actually a record for us. I think it is. Yeah. Puns contribute to our, our literary theme today. <laughs> hey, it's a, good, it's a good transition. Okay, that was better than usual. If if we're not supposed to do puns, you needed to warn me about that beforehand, because that's like... 20% of what I say. <laughs> well, that's what, that's why we brought you on. It's, it's just directly on brand. Oh, thank God. Okay. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to talk about books today. We're going to talk about uh, literature in magic, not only in the game itself, but also in the world of magic. So talking about books in world. And why don't, why don't we start with the cards, though? I mean, that's where most of us, at least, start with the cards and start with seeing it as a tangible thing. So what function does a book serve in the game? The thing about the significance of books in Magic is it actually starts with the rules of the game. Your deck is defined as your library. And so books directly translate to a body of knowledge that you have access to in your library. You're that's very right. I mean, that's the, 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 there's a reason it's called a library. I mean, it was this idea that you basically were pulling spells out of your collection. I mean, that you had the knowledge to bring these things forth, and you kept them collected somewhere. And I love the idea of Mill in that way, and the idea that you lose the game, basically, if you deplete your library, which is kind of a cool thing. Which is why everybody should play 200-card decks. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you see, you see this idea reflected even in the, the design of the card back, which is, you know, the, the, the one and only thing about the game, really, that's remained constant from, from 1993 forward is the, the design of that card back. It's meant to evoke the idea that you're looking at a spell book. It has that kind of quality to it, and I think that really sets the tone for this idea that it's a it's a representation almost in in physical form like morgan said it's not your deck it's your library and these are the the spells that you have access to because they're contained in this book and to, to continue that too the original packaging of the game like i started it revised and even there the starter decks mm -hmm. had the picture of the back on the front because it's a tome but the sides had pages yeah. and, and a binding oh, so the, the so cool. deck box looked like a book <laughs> sick I, yeah, I don't know if I remember that. I do know the... It's interesting, too, that we talk about the library being knowledge, um, but you have long-term knowledge in your in your deck, in your library. This is all the stuff that you have access to. Basically, you can go to your bookshelf and, and pull this off, you know, out of your library. But you also have your, your hand, which functions as knowledge, too. How does that relate to... Um, to the library or to that flavor of, of the books that you have in your collection, as it were. I think that goes to Alpha with Library of Lang. Yeah, Library of Lang is such a cool card for those of you who are not aware. The Library of Lang says, skip your discard step. If an effect causes you to discard a card, discard it, but you may put it on top of your library yeah. instead of your graveyard. The representation of your hand is knowledge you have immediate access to, kind of similar to how 
spells work in Dungeons and Dragons, where in order to cast a spell, you burn a spell slot. So you burn that spell, you either put it into play or put it into your discard pile once you cast it, and the Library of Lang functions as a way to prevent you from burning that spell without casting it. And and it's kind of a theme that we see on. Uh, there's not a. I mean, there's not a ton of library cards in the game, but there's a couple. And whether it's um, Library of Alexandria or Sylvan Library or Library of Latinam, they all kind of share that theme with with Library of Lang, which is they give you access to more cards. They get they give you the opportunity to to know more than you would know otherwise, or ca- you know, as it translates into the game mechanics, to cast more spells than you would be able to cast otherwise. That's a well too long on a single card, but I love the flavor of Library of Lang where someone might make you forget it right now, but because you have this library, you can go back and reclaim that knowledge. I mean, what, what's interesting is that, you know, even when they chose to give us the the, the, the one or the one set where we kind of had a real-world Arabian Nights, we kind of had this um, real-world setting, we, we end up with, they chose to do Library of Alexandria as a card, like represent that within Magic, because you know, that's one of the wonders of the world, and in Magic, when they were still doing weird stuff like having flavor text by Einstein, uh, <laughs> they let us have this library that, like you said, lets you draw more cards. It just, it, but you have to have exactly seven in your hand, which just makes it so fascinating. Well, and then uh, th- there's another card we could, which I wanted to talk about actually, which is almost the the direct opposite of Library of Alexandria, which is a card in Tempest uh, called Fool's Tome, which is an artifact that lets you uh, draw a card, but only if you have no cards in your hand, as opposed to Library of Alexandria, which lets you draw a card, but only if you already have seven cards in your hand. And I, I specifically want to, since we're talking about flavor text, I spe- specifically want to talk about the flavor text on Fool's Tome, which is a uh, sort of transcribed dialogue between Squee and Erte, where Squee says, what's that? And Erte says, it's a magical book. And Squee says, am I smart enough to use it? And Erte says, you could say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and that's, a, that's a great way to pivot to the next part of how we see books in, in magic is artifacts, right? So we have, you know, lands like Library of Alexandria, enchantments like Sylvan Library, or some of the draw spells like Library of Latinam. Um, but you have artifacts like the tomes, the JMD tome, Jalem tome, MSE tome, uh, Thrawn tome, all of these. And again, though, these draw you cards in different ways. You have these draw abilities. Again, it's it's taking this this item, this artifact that you find somewhere and, you know, opening it up, cracking it open and, and consuming some of that knowledge. No pun intended, Orc. Too late. <laughs> Damn it. You can't, you can't open that door and not expect me to walk through it. <laughs> you have these, you have scrolls, and I, I don't know if you guys, is there is there a flavor difference between how scrolls and tomes function in the game? Yeah, there is. Because I started really getting into drafting around Avacyn Restored, there are two scrolls that really stand out to me. And they are Scroll of Avacyn and Scroll of Gristlebrand. And the thing about scrolls is they tend to be more single use. Mm. Um, both of those cards require you to pay a mana and sacrifice it in order to get the effect, versus books where they stick around and they're mono artifacts where you can tap it and use it every turn. Um, Additionally, scrolls tend to have more spell-like effects. For example, Spell of the Masters 
from Fateforged, I believe, has an ability where you tap it to give a creature plus one plus one for every non-creature spell you've played. So that one, instead of drawing you cards, cares about the spells that you've played, the knowledge that you have, mm-hmm. but instead of using that knowledge to put more cards in your hand to gain you more knowledge from that, you are using that knowledge to make your creature bigger. One thing that's really interesting is the, the, the scroll that came to mind for me actually was, it was not actually a scroll, it's a scroll rack. So um, yeah. I, I love the idea that you kind of are taking the knowledge that you already have and you're putting it back up on the shelf. Like you're, you're swapping out because you need something else right then. And it's just oh, such yeah. a cool effect that in the game even. I mean, and I also like it's It's really interesting because I was just looking at the wording on it. You don't actually draw the cards. So you're actually just literally just swapping them out. I mean, you're not drawing them. You're not, they're just, you are grabbing them off your shelf and you have them. And to go to what uh, Martin was saying about the difference between spell uh, scrolls and books, that fits a lot with like Dungeons and Dragons, how they function there. You're, the wizard has a spell book that they use every day to memorize their spells, and that's a permanent item as opposed mm. to a scroll, which is a one-shot use. And the game of magic was completely taken from D&D originally, you know. So in a way, I mean, we are kind of chronicling D&D adventures into this almost book-like thing, you know. We're writing our own stories, you guys. Well, and, and, and I think, too, what's interesting is, like Morgan was saying, that, that books, when they appear in the game, tend to be, uh, you know, the, that kind of like mono artifact that has some sort of effect that you can use repeatedly to draw more cards. Um when when you see sort of in the game the occasionally the representations of something which prey on books or attack books or destroy books that's represented by the loss of cards um so you have uh not to self-promote here but you have my my namesake uh critter in there who uh goes through and chews some cards off of the top of the library because uh, he's not a very good librarian um you have uh insidious bookworms which uh, makes the other player discard at random. You have book burning, which takes cards off of the player's library and puts them in the graveyard. You even have like uh, Curse of the Bloody Tome, which has that repeated mill effect. So in the same way that we, we tend to see books as an opportunity to access more cards, if something goes after books or attacks books or preys on books somehow, that tends to be expressed in the game as the loss of cards. So... That's not always a bad thing, speaking from a librarian's perspective. In order to run a library, you don't have infinite space, so you have to curate the books that you have. And one of the really cool representations of this, although it's a representation that kind of depicts it as negative, from um, M19 is Dismissive Pyromancer, which is a 2-2 for 2, and it has the ability Red Tap, discard a card, draw a card. So you are curating your hand in that case. And there are other examples of curating your hand in red that are flavored like red, where it's very random and chaotic, like Burning Inquiry, which is a star of modern right now. Removing cards from your hand after gaining a lot more knowledge. But I really like the flavor text of the Pyromancer because (laughs) it's... Uh, it, it's something like toss, toss, keep, toss. 
Yeah, he's, he's like thumbing through these different books in the arts, and it's yeah, burn, it's burn, yeah, keep, yeah. burn. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's just he's literally just tossing like he's thumbing through the books with one hand and tossing them into the flames in the background with the other. It's beautiful, yeah. Uh, or uh, in in that same line, I'll go back to uh, browse which is a blue enchantment from Alliances, which I have uh, spent more time playing than I probably ought to admit <laughs> uh, on the air, but it lets you uh, look at the top five cards of your library and put one into your hand and remove the remaining four from the game. So like Morgan was saying, again, it's that idea of like selection. And uh, it even has uh, some Jaya Ballard flavored text where she says, uh, once great literature, now great litter. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just so interesting to see that effect on blue. And to see a giant, I always, I always get thrown off by seeing these giant flavor texts on a blue card. Well, you could also say too that our our namesake card is uh is that same thing, well, Goblin Lore. Yeah. I mean, it's just you don't really get to curate it because it's all random. Yeah. And that's you know that's very on flavor that's, for the goblins. Yeah. That's a goblin version of curation. Right. <laughs> just get stuff and then throw away what however much we can't carry and right. whatever's left must be the important stuff because that's what's left. That's what's right. Um, also. We've kind of figured out now a little bit more about how books and, and scrolls and, and all this literature functions game-wise. Um, let's take one step back now into, it's still a part of the card, but you know, let's maybe move a little into more of the flavor. So we talked, we've mentioned some of the flavor text, but what does flavor text add for a card? Or you have your whole uh, flavor added thing that you do on Twitter. Um, can you explain a little bit about that and why? What about adding flavor text to a card that doesn't have it is important to you? Oh sure. Um, so flavor added is a thing I do. Hashtag flavor added uh, uh, is a thing I do on Twitter, which uh, a lot of other people do now too. Which which I love, and I, I certainly invite uh, people after the show to take a look at it. Hashtag flavor added. Um, <laughs> And if, uh, if it's something that you find interesting, you know, it's not, it's not like this is a uh, licensed activity. Anybody can do it. Uh, and really what it is is just uh, looking through uh, Scryfall, looking through Gatherer or whatever your, your search engine of choice is for this sort of thing and finding cards that don't already have flavor text on them. And just using it as kind of a world-building exercise and a creative writing exercise to try to sit down and think, well, if, if we were going to put flavor text on that card, what might it be like? And the thing I like so much about flavor text is that, I, I mean, the, the name is very accurate. What it is is it's giving a little extra something to the card. It, it kind of situates it in this fantasy world it kind of situates it in this this alternate reality with these characters and these storylines and it can bring emotion into the card it can bring context into the card it can bring narrative significance into the card it can bring humor into the card it's really an opportunity to tell a story in a very small space um, and when it's done well and uh, Sam, who does uh, Ristic Studies on YouTube, has a whole video on flavor text, which uh, if people haven't watched, I encourage them to go and watch because it's, it's really well done. And it really kind of gets to the heart of the function that flavor text provides, where it's adding something to the card. It's bringing a little extra. It's situating it in a larger context and in a way that doesn't have to matter for game purposes. 
And it's a really cool opportunity to just explore that world a little bit more. And it's something that I really enjoy doing. And it's uh, it's just a lot of fun. And I certainly encourage other people, if, if they enjoy it, to do it too. One of the things with Flavor Text that's in Magic is they've used... they uh, Magic Design has kind of acknowledged the role of Flavor Text to tell a story in Unstable. Uh, and this is where I get to brag about the piece of art that I own, uh, Novella Mental, which is a, f- a book that is flying, and it's a gorgeous piece of art. I'm getting it framed now. I'm so excited to see it. Oh my uh, god, I did not know that you had that. Yeah, that amazing. yeah. So that's the, the first piece of like colored magic art that I own. And wow. um, there are four different versions of Novella Mental, and... The gag with the four different versions is everything about it is the same, the art, the name, the rules text, the flavor text is different. Over the span of four cards, it tells the story of a locket that gives its user wings. And it's it's really beautiful flavor text. And it's just a really cool card that's very close to my heart. And it literally tells a story in the flavor text that is kind of, it's kind of separate from the art even. So whereas like uh, Reckless Pyromancer, or Dismissive Pyromancer rather, um, has a quote that could be happening in the card art, the novella mental is uh, a novella in the flavor text. I also really appreciate that there's a pun on the card. Yes. (laughs) The book is called Jane Eyre. Errors being in the air where the novella mental is. <laughs> when I think about the role of flavor text in, in in world building, you were talking about that a bit, Orc, as well. I always think about the kind of the OG world building flavor text set, which was Fallen Empires, and that's I mean that's my favorite set in all of Magic. Yeah. The whole flavor text of that set tells this story of civilized empires on the continent of Sarpedia over the course of however many years, but get all of these different chunks of, of story. It's it's like you're reading out of a history book or out of a textbook, and they're all Sarpedian Empires, Volume 1 through 6. And I really, I, I mean, that was kind of groundbreaking for Magic to do then, because, like you said, Hobbes, they had, they would use sometimes quotes from Einstein on card Shakespeare. text. Shakespeare. I mean, the Bible. Yeah, and Arabian Nights being a set that Richard Garfield designed, and I can't remember what it was, but he designed it by himself in a very short amount of time. Someone just went through and grabbed quotes from Arabian Nights. Like, yep. That was the flavor text for every card of that set. Yeah, the editor realized that the cards did not have flavor text, so she went through and did that in a night because it had to go out for printing the next day. Oh well, and, and in addition to world building, a lot of it was character. A lot of it is character building too. Um, and again, the the example I'll just I'll go back to again because she's one of my favorite characters, maybe my favorite character in in the entire Magic universe, and is uh, Jaya Ballard, who only existed in flavor text for the longest time. She didn't have a card. She didn't feature in. Uh, the printed story materials until we got much later into the day. She was a character that only existed um, from the quotes on flavor text. And there was, when you think about kind of the strength of character and just the personality that you got from really just a very small amount of text, 
she's only quoted on 25 cards. Um, it, fe it feels like, it, you know, in my head, it, you know, I remember back and it feels like it must have been hundreds, but she's only quoted on a couple dozen cards. And a lot of these are, you know, short quotes. It's just gotcha. And that, that was the only place where someone like Jaya Ballard existed. That was the only place where a lot of these characters existed. They didn't have cards. They weren't featured in art. They only existed in flavor. But it gave you that sense that there was this much larger world out there with these interesting people in it who you wanted to learn more about. Which has allowed us to come back to those characters now. And I mean, even I, mean, I think there really has been a nod to the fans of the game kind of asking for this basically you know ending up getting a Fraley's card ending up getting Jaya Ballard in in a couple of iterations now both Planeswalker and non-Planeswalker just this week we got uh Lord Windgrace finally in yes. Commander I mean it is and, and Zantra who is probably yeah. one of the yeah. coolest most interesting characters just because so many horrible things happen to her yeah um, in flavor text and it's, it's interesting that the flavor text is like the little builds these little pieces that's kind of a like I go to uh writing conventions and talk about the craft of writing and that is a writing technique that short story and novel writers will use you build the world with little details mm -hmm. you don't have to show everything in fact a lot of times you don't want to show everything uh, and and the thing i want to emphasize to people which i think you can understand it at an academic level but it becomes much more clear when you when you start trying to do an exercise like do flavor added or if you know which comes up in conversation whenever I'm, I'm fortunate enough to talk to the uh, the handful of people I know who, you know, the some of the incredibly talented people who actually work on names and flavor for the game. It's incredibly hard to do well. Flavor text is incredibly hard to do well. And it's incredibly, incredibly hard to do great because you have severe limitations in terms of space. You only have room for a very small amount of text in a lot of cases. We're talking a line, maybe two lines. And especially if it's something like a quote where there's going to be an attribution at the end, that's taking up another line. So you're working under extremely limited space constraints. You're working in a larger context, which also shapes and limits what you can do. It has to make sense with the art. It has to make sense with the function of the card. You don't want to do something which is thematically off-putting. You don't want to do something which takes away from the rest of what the card is doing or somehow creates confusion about what its function is. It's, again, to go to um, the an analogy that, that Ristic Studies uses in his video about this. It's essentially like you're, you're the rhythm section in a band or an orchestra. The job is to work with everything else, but not to step forward and steal the show, not to be the distraction. And it's an incredibly dif difficult balancing act for teams that work under incredibly tight constraints. And the fact that it's as, as successful as it is, as often as it is, is really a testament to the, the thoughtfulness that goes into this process. One of my favorite examples of the space constraint being used in order to increase the flavor of the set is in Shadows Over Innistrad. Um, Shadows Over Innistrad, I really paid attention to because Innistrad was the, like, when I was first getting into buying a bunch of magic cards and going to events with my friends. And so returning to Innistrad was great. And one of the ways that they conveyed the kind of mystery of Innistrad was these really short tidbits, these really short quotes from, from Tamio's journal about Avacyn. And you can find these on the clue cards. You can find this on, these on Tamio's journal. But 
they're just these really small quotes that trail off that are kind of they kind of emphasize the mysteriousness and the like the detective kind of quality that Shadows Over Innistrad has and that's a really and it also hints at Tamiyo being in uh, Eldritch Moon. Tamiyo didn't show up in Shadows Over Innistrad Mm -hmm. but she was there with the journal and the quotes from the journal and we finally see her in Eldritch Moon. And, um, I mean, didn't we also have the, like, the Spanish card, or, like, some of the foreign language cards actually had different entries from her journal on the Tamiyo's journal? I don't remember that, but... I think there was numbers that were, like, the numbers were different and stuff. Oh, yeah, I think you're right. And that was, yeah, that kind of led to that meta sort of discovery thing Mm -hmm. for all of us, too, when they were were releasing cards. That, That led to one of my favorite things in a magic, like, written story ever... And it was how her magic was represented, where she will literally, her spells are in the forms of stories. And it also shows where, like, the new walkers, even though they don't have, you know, godlike power like the old walkers, because she was able to go to different planes, she had stories from different planes, and that was able to build her magic stronger, because she had a story from Mirrodin. She was talking about mirrors, and mm-hmm. I can't remember all of them, but it was stories from different planes, and I just love that representation of magic. Which, which, interestingly, is actually something of a rarity in, in the, the narrative in the game. We don't actually see a lot of characters in the game who their magic is depicted as coming from a scroll or a spell book. It's, it's, for all that that features into the mechanics of the game, it's not something that we actually see that much in terms of some of the major characters in the storyline. It's, it's rarer than you might think it would be. That kind of moves us to our next point, sort of the meta lore part of it. We do have representation of, of Tamiyo using stories as magic. Um, the other the other big representation of it is, uh, you know, this is going to be controversial here, but one of my favorite things in magic lore is Commodore Guff and the history of the multiverse. In the invasion story cycle, he was one of the nine titans that Urza brought together, the planeswalkers, to invade uh, Phyrexia and destroy it. But Commodore Guff was not a... He wasn't like a, a warrior or anything. He was kind of just this goofball dude who... His magic is based around the ability... I mean, he writes in essentially what is going to happen in the universe. He can kind of see what's going to happen in the multiverse. And um, he has this book that contains all of the things that are going to happen. And so people get hacked off about this, but he read through the end of the book and saw that Yogmoth was going to destroy Dominaria. And the way that he helped, he was like, I can't ensure that Gerard or Urza's plan is going to work, but I can sure give them a chance. And he erases the last chapter of the book. And changes fate in that way. I, I love that. And he's constantly like this joking character and he's breaking the fourth wall and referencing the reader and like referencing things that were happening in Wizards at the time and, and Magic Story at large. And I, I think that's super cool because we do have that that sort of self-referential meta story character, you know, in in, in lore. He's he's kind of like Santa Claus meets Deadpool, I think. You know? <laughs> That's that's what I think of with Commodore Guff. Oh my gosh, that's going to be the takeaway from this episode. <laughs> I also like now that I'm looking at Guff a little bit that he like lived in a hidden library. Yeah, like, that's awesome. Like that's I kind of want to do this. 
just, yeah. I feel like Tamio and Guff are the only two that have actually been ones that use, like, text or literature as their, sort of as their medium. That's our show. You can find the podcast at Goblin Lore Pod on Twitter. You can email us any questions, comments, or concerns at goblinlorepodcast at gmail.com. Morgan Wentworth can be found at MTG Valkyrie on Twitter. The Orcish Librarian can be found at Bibliovore Orc. Joe Redman can be found at Findhorn. That's F-Y-N-D Horn. Hobbs Q can be found at Hobbs Q. And Alex Newman can be found at Alexander New M. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you in part two. And remember, goblins, like snowflakes, are only dangerous in numbers. <laughs>